You're listening to the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church, a historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. Hello and welcome back to the Faith and Practice Podcast, now under the oversight and purview of Antioch Presbyterian Church of Woodruff, South Carolina, a congregation of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America. I am joined here in the studio today with uh, my ever faithful and enjoyable colleague, Dr. Joseph A. Piper, Jr., Dr. Piper. Hey, Zach. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for uh, joining me this afternoon. Uh, We have a number of questions that have been sitting on our list for many months now as we have made preparations to relaunch a podcast under Antioch. And I want to thank our listeners for their patience. And before we dive into these questions, I do want us to open with a word of prayer. Dr. Pipe, if you would pray for us. Almighty and glorious God in heaven, you who are most excellent, splendid, and majestic, we bless you, Lord, and we thank you that you are the God of our salvation. We thank you, you're the God of truth, and that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, what we're to believe and how we're to live. We thank you for the opportunity to discuss these things on Faith and Practice podcast. We ask that your spirit would give us wisdom and make this uh, venue profitable, Lord, for those who listen. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. For those who haven't listened before to the podcast, a little bit of background. Uh, for um, several years at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, Dr. Piper um, hosted and co-hosted a monthly segment, more or less monthly segment, I should say, of Theological Q&A. That began with uh, the original podcast host, his name is Bill Hill. He's a PCA pastor up in Illinois these days. And then after he retired from the podcast and entered into full-time ministry, I took it over during my tenure as Director of Advancement and Admissions at the seminary and continued the Faith and Practice segment. After the closure of my tenure at Greenville Seminary, uh, Dr. Piper and I asked permission from the brothers at the seminary, and they uh, gladly gave it to us to continue doing a monthly Q&A out of our church here at Antioch Presbyterian Church and retaining the name Faith and Practice, which really the podcast has been using for really 10 years, I think, maybe even 11 years at this point. So we're glad to be back at it. We do apologize to longtime listeners for the delay, and um, we thank you all for your (laughs) persistent encouragement that we get uh, back into it. And if you're new to listening to Faith and Practice, we welcome you, and we encourage you to visit the website, antiochpca.com, and to find the podcast page on there and submit your questions. We love hearing from our listeners, and we love addressing uh, timely questions and timeless questions relating to the application of faith to our practice, and um, also the determination of our faith from God's Word. Before we dive into the questions, though, Dr. Piper had the great idea of talking a little bit about the church and what we're doing here at Antioch and encouraging you as you pray for us, or perhaps if you're considering moving to upstate South Carolina, encouraging you to join with us or at least to visit with us and see if you might take part in the work here. 
Antioch Presbyterian Church was originally founded in 1843. Uh, the Anderson family donated a tract of land for the erection of a church here in uh, what was then rural South Carolina. Uh, after the American Civil War, popularly known in the South as the War Between the States or the War of Northern Aggression, the church didn't fold but rather moved to uh, nearby Reedville, South Carolina, um, and relocated to meeting in a borrowed space at a, um, at a woman's college there in Reedville. After a short period of time, another family donated some land for the erection of a church structure there in downtown Reedville, and the church continued meeting there as Antioch until about 1904, when an enterprising um, and very educated woman, Mary Anderson Leonard, uh, corralled a group and said, let's start meeting at the old Antioch church location again. And so a group out of the Reedville Antioch Church began meeting at the old Antioch Church in what is called Cashville back at the time. And um, for a period of years, those two congregations uh, shared a pastor along with another Presbyterian church not too far away, the Mother Church, uh, Nazareth Presbyterian Church, and, and really for a number of decades, they shared ministers. Uh, after um, the Nazareth Church uh, removed itself from the arrangement. The Reedville and Antioch churches continued sharing a pastor uh, until about 1981 or two, and then uh, they were um, kind of on their own. But before that kind of breaking of the partnership in that respect, in 1973, both Reedville and Antioch came into the PCA. They're charter congregations of the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, flash forward a bit to 2020. The Antioch congregation was holding steady at about four or five active members, faithfully maintaining the grounds, including a, a, a rather expansive cemetery, and uh, maintaining, more importantly, maintaining the ministry here week in and week out. But the pastor, Charles Champion, had reached the age of 86 years old and asked Presbytery to send a group to come in and, and take over. And uh, Dr. Piper and I were invited to get involved, uh, Dr. Piper as a church planter and myself as his ministry assistant while we were both still working full-time at Greenville Seminary. After a couple years, in, uh, in 20, really in 2021, by the end of 2021, we determined with the temporary session that Antioch really needed a full-time man in the pulpit. And so uh, I was invited to uh, heed that call and that's what precipitated my leaving Greenville Seminary uh, to enter into full-time pastoral ministry here at Antioch. And longtime listeners are very familiar with that last detail in any case. Dr. Piper has continued laboring here at Antioch in a part-time capacity while he has been teaching full-time at Greenville Seminary. And uh, we're very grateful to have him involved uh, in, in the ministry here and serving on the temporary session. And we have borrowed elders from several of our sister PCA congregations here in Calvary Presbytery. We started in September of 2020 when we kind of assumed uh, stewardship of this property and of the ministry here. We started with three families, and we have since grown to 16 active families, and we are running up against really the limits of what our little and old facility here can accommodate. And so we're even now looking into developing the property a bit, expanding the current facility and a bit further down the road looking to what it might look like 
to build a new building on the eastern half of our property. We have about nine and a half acres here. So the Lord's been doing wonderful things here, and uh, you know, in many ways, we're, we've been along for the ride and very grateful to, to see what he's doing at Antioch. Um, much of the growth we attribute to the fact that the area is just exploding in population. Uh, we get visitors who are new to the area or who have been living here for just a few years, and um, and those who are interested in an old-school Presbyterian ministry uh, certainly should check out Antioch, but a bit more broadly, if you're just interested in a biblical ministry and a worship that's regulated according to the Word of God and that seeks to glorify Christ in all things for the good of His people and the advancement of His kingdom, then Antioch should be at the top of your list if you're moving into the area, along with the, the very many other excellent churches that are here in the region. So anything you would want to add to that, Dr. Piper? Yeah, Zach, I would encourage people to uh, go online and uh, look at the church, the bulletins. They can stream the services. Our sermons are posted every week as well. Uh, and even if, you know, they just, they're also on sermon audio, but if people just um, want to listen to the sermons, uh, they're available for folks as well. That's right. That's right. And we, like Dr. Piper said, we have a live stream and we've been recording the video as well and, and posting that, at least for the sermons, online uh, for your review and edification. Well, with all of those preliminaries aside, and thank you for your patience, we're going to dive into our subjects for today. We have a number of questions dealing with some perennially popular topics on faith and practice, including Sabbath observance and the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath and the Lord's Day. And um, we're also going to give a little bit of a review of PCA General Assembly 50, which took place in Memphis, Tennessee this year. And we have a number of questions dealing with sexual ethics, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and um, things of like nature and worship, of course. So uh, one thing I definitely want to make sure we talk about, Dr. Piper, is uh, just the, the number of encouraging decisions handed down by the Supreme Court of the United States this week, including one that deals with our favorite subject, the Sabbath. Right, yeah. Um, the so-called faithful carrier case, Groff versus DeJoy, Postmaster General. <laughs> um, there is a relation there between Gerald Groff and myself. I don't know precisely what it is, but I'm sure we're descended from common stock going back generations. Dr. Piper, I know you read the unanimous decision of the court, and uh, so did I this week. Uh, could you give us a rundown of the issues as they were presented? Okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy this happened. I guess it's been over a year ago. I was interviewed in a Christianity Today um, online, their online magazine uh, on this. The interviewer was very sympathetic to Mr. Groff's uh, case. So, um, he went to work with the Postal Service. Um, he was converted, came to Sabbath convictions. It was a good place for him to work because they did not require any Sabbath activity. But when they got the Amazon contract that required uh, Lord's Day deliveries, he uh, asked not to do that. He tried all kinds of things to accommodate them. Uh, at the post office. He went to be a, a rural mail carrier, and um, because at that point they were not delivering for Amazon, then the contract changed there. Got a transfer, but 
eventually it came to the point it was such a hardship on him that he resigned. But in the process, and I thank the Lord, not just for himself, but for the cause that he filed this suit then, um, that has been carried all the way to the Supreme Court. The decision was 9-0, and uh, Judge Leto wrote the, an opinion that was just really well written. I would encourage our, our hearers to, uh, to look it up. Um, and, the, and the main issue there, Zach, you pick up on the dynamis and, and the uh, undue hardship. Basically, what this case opened up for the Supreme Court was an opportunity to correct a uh, nearly 50-year misinterpretation of um, the phrase undue hardship uh, in the statutory law under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which protects um, employees from discrimination uh, by employers and potential employers on the basis of a number of protected classes, including religion. And essentially, since a case in 1977, the Hardison case is what it's called, undue hardship has been interpreted uh, by lower courts to mean a, uh, a de minimis standard. That is basically a barely negligible uh, requirement upon employers. If you, if, since 1977, if you as an employer have, have been able to establish this de minimis standard of inconvenience by an employee's religious convictions or some other protected class, then you're, you've, you've been basically granted legal grounds to terminate that employee. And uh, what this case, Groff versus DeJoy, establishes is, a, is really the common sense standard. Undue hardship is not a barely negligible inconvenience. It's a substantial hardship uh, being asked of the um, of an employer, and if you read the if you read the majority opinion, really the unanimous opinion handed down by um, by Justice Alito, and and even the concurring opinion by Justices Sotomayor and Jackson, they're all very careful to say that uh, this this doesn't overturn Hardison, but it clarifies what Hardison was actually doing, and that was. In Hardison, if you look at it, there is a conflict between some a, a junior employee's um, religious convictions and senior employee's seniority uh, and right to request time off at a at a facility that ran twenty four seven. And so, basically, there the conflict between collective bargaining and seniority um, and and religious um, objection that's what caused undue hardship, which is much more significant than a de minimis standard of, uh, of, of establishing inconvenience or something. And so on, in Groff versus DeJoy, what we see is uh, the Supreme Court correcting 50 years of poor decision-making and, and misinterpretation of a significant case from 1977. And this will have far-reaching ramifications, not just for Sabbatarian Christians, but for Sabbatarian Jews, um, for Muslims who wear particular religiously significant garb, for Sikhs who have religiously significant facial hair. These are all examples of religious adherents who have been fired, let go, or refused employment uh, due to their religious uh, convictions, sincerely held religious beliefs, on the, on the supposition that them observing their religion in the workplace would place an undue burden upon the employer but the employers never really demonstrated economic 
loss or substantial um, um, business threatening effects or impacts on their on their business. And so it was interesting in reading the the brief, um, the opinion, Dr. Piper, was that there were a number of uh, amicus briefs filed by um, the Council on American Islamic Relations and the Coalition of Sikhs and uh, an or- I think a, an Orthodox Jewish group, as well as a Seventh-day Adventist group, none of whom would observe a first-day Sabbath, but all of whom n- uh, re- recognized the, the interest in our pluralistic society uh, that they had in um, the Faithful Carrier case. Um, and the fact that the man's last name is Groff just kind of makes me smile. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's quite an answer to prayer, and we praise the Lord for this. And it goes back to the lower court. Uh, I think they remanded it to uh, the Third Circuit. Yeah. Yeah. So I I doubt that Mr. Groff is going to want to resume his work at the post service. I think my understanding is he got a new job um, at a private community uh, as a postmaster uh, in that, you know, retirement community. And I think he's happy there. Not that I've ever had any personal contact uh, with my distant kinsmen. Um, <laughs> but hopefully there is some um, rectification of the wrong. And, you know, when you look at cases like this and, and a couple of the other freedom of speech and religious liberty cases that were decided this this cycle, uh, you recognize that though the particular plaintiffs named in the case, such as Gerald Groff, though they might not recuperate uh, monetary damages equal to the amount of time that they've put into this thing, um, what they've done is a service not just to fellow believers, but to the commonwealth as a whole in the pursuit of a more just and equitable society. And I I think that if you ever find yourself in a similar position, stand your ground and pursue it as far as you can legally and and look up groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom and uh, the First Liberty Institute and other um, religious liberty-interested lawyers and, and organizations to help represent you. They do a great job. And it really is important in the life of the nation and, by extension, in the life of churches that operate within the nation. So that's, I'll get off my political soapbox. And we could talk about something much less political, the 50th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, I have the privilege of sitting here with a founding father of the PCA and, and uh, those uh, founders of the denomination who are still living and present at the 50th GA were recognized. Uh, Dr. Piper, do you have any initial reflections you want to share on the 50th General Assembly? You know, Zach, I think what you and I were talking about before we went on the air is, for me, the most important thing. We established the General Assembly as a grassroots uh, denomination, uh, trying to keep limited uh, authority uh, in the permanent committees uh, and giving that to the church at large. And so in order to do that, a couple of things were put in place. One was that uh, the committees themselves could serve two classes and, and the person would have to go off. Uh, and the General Assembly would approve both their actions and make suggestions to them are received suggestions from them about programs. Each year at the assembly then, 
the work of the committees was reviewed by committees made up of commissioners to the assembly called review and um, committees of commissioners. Committees of commissioners would look at the minutes and consider uh, any uh, recommendations from the committee about what to do and how they've done in terms of what they were asked to do. Uh, over the years, particularly the last 30 years, this whole idea of committee commissioners became more of a rubber stamp. And the committees began to work very uh, autonomously from the assembly, getting into the idea of being a board or an agency, not a committee. Well, two assemblies ago, the committee commissioners began to deal with some problems in one of the committees, and that report from the committee commissioners was upheld by the General Assembly. And this year, there were a number of important issues that the committee commissioners brought to the floor of the assembly, and the assembly upheld the committee commissioners over against the uh, uh, permanent committees. The other one that really encouraged me was uh, there's a church up in uh, New York in that presbytery. Uh, the pastor had an Episcopal female minister uh, in the pulpit. Uh, actually, a young graduate of Greenville Seminary discovered this, wrote an excellent letter to the people and to the presbytery. This got taken up by our committee of review of presbyter presbytery minutes, and that presbytery, because it did not deal with that church, having that woman in the pulpit, has actually cited them to meet with our uh, judicial committee, commission. Um, that also is very important, I think, in terms of oversight of the church. Dr. Piper hits on a number of interesting trends at this year's assembly. There is both a, a strengthening of our grassroots principles, kind of a reclaiming of them in the vigorous engagement by the committees of commissioners. And there is also a, a very clear strengthening of our Presbyterian connectionalism in sending two cases before the Standing Judicial Commission out of our uh, Committee of Review of Presbytery Records. Um, this issue in Metro New York Presbytery, and then another issue in Northwest Georgia. And, you know, there, there were people on both sides of the issues um, in, in, these, in these referrals to the Standing Judicial Commission, but if we had to give a, a kind of a big-picture statement of what was going on at the Assembly, it was uh, not a, you know, like a return of Presbyterianism or something in the PCA. That would be too dramatic, but uh, there... <laughs> There was definitely a, um, a hearkening back to the historic polity of the PCA, and, and I appreciated that. Other things I wanted to mention, Dr. Piper, moderator Fred Greco did a wonderful job uh, running the meeting and got us out by, it was in record time, I think it was... Uh, no, this has happened two or three times. Uh, before three o'clock in the afternoon yeah, on Thursday, yeah, yes, over, this, over the decades. I, th I thought that he had beat the previous record by 20 minutes in terms of bringing us to a close, but I, I don't know. Well, I don't know. If somebody announced that, then I guess that's true. <laughs> um, there was a, a third year in a row of outstanding, relatively speaking, outstanding ruling elder participation in the General Assembly, and I think that does have a direct bearing on the outcomes that we saw at General Assembly. Um, as far as looking at the future, it seems that the... Um, the sexuality and identity conversation in the PCA has largely come to a close. I mean, presbyteries need to ratify 
uh, a proposed BCO amendment uh, that was um, passed at this year's assembly to to make the basically make it very clear that you cannot identify yourself with your sin and be an officer in the Presbyterian Church in America. And that is addressing the elephant in the room, which is the revoice problem and and the whole drama surrounding Greg Johnson, who's no longer in the PCA. He left uh, for independency as Memorial Presbyterian Church of St. Louis is looking for new denominational affiliation. However, it looks like the conversation is really heating up around the abuse issue that is very popular in mainstream media that is undeniably a problem in, um, in, in different institutions, both ecclesiastical and non-ecclesiastical. Just name Boy Scouts or the Roman Catholic Church or high-profile um, scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention. And there are folks in the PCA who are seeking to make this more and more of a conversation in our denomination, even um, inspiring very dramatic uh, reports in mainstream media and in uh, Christian media, so-called, including Christianity Today and uh, certain more liberal progressive Baptist news outlets that have been covering this. So I think we're going to continue to see the abuse conversation heat up in future years. Any other observations you want to make, Dr. P? I know you mentioned young churchmen being involved. Yeah, I was very impressed with uh, the number of of younger pastors who are involved uh, speaking intelligently and biblically to issues. Uh, A lot of men that I didn't know. Uh, A few years ago, we were told that you know all the under 40 guys you know they're not going to want a confessional church they're going to want a big umbrella church well this assembly proves just the opposite and i talked to a lot of these guys in in, in private as well so that was uh, that was really encouraging to me as you mentioned the ruling elder participation and i i didn't count it but i would think that probably some 35 to 40 percent of the people at the microphones of this assembly were ruling elders and some very able ruling elders, and make a plug here for more, which has been working to uh, raise funds to get ruling elders uh, to the uh, assembly. Also, uh, what I kind of said to you when we were driving home, what I said to you was, I'd like to write out weekly, I'll say it here, if you left us prematurely, come home, because the Lord is, is uh, I think, doing some really significant things in our denomination. And you're making a reference to uh, brothers and congregations who have left to either form new smaller denominations or reaffiliate with uh, maybe some sister denominations within NAPARC. Yep. Okay. Well, you heard it here, folks. Founding father of the PCA, Joseph Piper, <laughs> calling you home. Uh, so, well, speaking about the founding of the PCA, I'm going to jump right into the middle of some of these questions that we have. Um, Our friend Wayne Sparkman of the PCA Historical Center has a history question. He says, why was the 1933 edition of the PCUS Book of Church Order chosen as a starting point for putting together the PCA Book of Church Order? Some statement as to the reason why seems not to be found among the published histories. And uh, for a bit of background um, in the kind of the different editions of the PCUSBCO, generally the 1925 edition is regarded to be the most faithful to historic old school Presbyterianism. So it's curious 
that the 33 edition then was the benchmark for the PCA's first book of church order. And we don't want to forget the men who wrote the BCO for us, Dr. Piper. Uh, do you have any insight into this historical question? Only speculation. Uh, and I wonder if in the front of his commentary on the BCO, if Dr. Smith maybe addresses that issue. But um, the BCO is the book of church order, and so it's the governing principles of our denomination. It has three elements, the uh, form of government, the rules of discipline, and the directory for worship. The directory for worship is fairly useless because only a couple of parts of it are binding. Um, the rules of discipline, um, I think, are too legalistic, and I would say that at that point, the people that contributed to, uh, to that were lawyers, and I think that that has colored what I think is some of the um, uh, difficulties and convolutions of the rules for discipline. I think too much of a lawyering. Um, the form of government, Dr. Smith was the primary architect of that. And knowing him, I'm sure he would have preferred to go back to the one from the 20s. My speculation is uh, we had churches coming in that would have had things like uh, rotating sessions and diaconates that would not have, probably not have been in the earlier book. Uh, they still would have had uh, elders, deacons uh, elected, ordained for, for life or, or sabbatical or until they would have resigned or been put off by discipline. And I think because we had churches that already were practicing the uh, other approach is one of the reasons that that's and I've not examined this to see if that's in the 33 book, but I would speculate that it probably is. The directory of worship also, we had churches that were already doing some things that would have been uh, probably not acceptable uh, in the directory of worship. And so that's why uh, it was not even... Uh, fully adopted. Now, I just heard of this assembly, maybe Zach be the one that told me, they actually had hoped to come back in a couple of years and get that binding. That's right. Um, a, f a friend of mine, teaching elder Jared Nelson, has done some research into the history of the Directory for Public Worship, and he's of the opinion, or, or he believes, and I think maybe even has some documentary evidence to substantiate this claim, that the Directory for Public Worship um, they were hoping to produce a constitutionally binding one. And if you look at the kind of the preface to it in RBCO, it's rather strongly worded for introducing something that's not binding. And <laughs> it does give the, I mean, it tells you to, to, to give it significant weight and consideration. And, um, and so maybe we'll start seeing more overtures to bring at least parts of it, more parts of it, beyond the marriage thing and the sacraments portions uh, to bring them into yeah. the Constitution, which would be a wonderful move. I mean, it I think, would be. aren't we the only Presbyterian church in history or the first one in history not to have a constitutionally yep. binding directory for public worship? So um, that, that would be a positive development uh, of Reformation in the PCA in years to come. Um, very good. Thank you, Wayne, for the question, and thank you, Dr. Piper, for the thoughts. Uh, more historical work could be done on this. I don't know how much material we would have 50 years. If any of our hearers know anything, though, please let us, yeah. let us know. 
Um, a next question comes from an anonymous teaching elder. Uh, his question has to do with officiating marriage. He's wondering if you have any thoughts or advice about Christian ministers marrying two unbelievers and or marrying two professing Christians who show no evidence of true saving faith. Can ministers officiate these marriages, and should they? What's the question as a pastor I've dealt with over the years? I think they could. Uh, I don't know anything that um, would hinder as long as a couple is not unequally yoked. My approach has always been that if I officiate a, a service of two unbelievers, I am causing them to sin by taking God's name in vain. Because in a Christian wedding service, you're taking vows uh, clearly defined by our confession of faith. And so I would not want to be complicit in that taking place. I think that, uh, I think maybe one time in my ministry, I did participate, I did marry a couple because they were living together and wanted to get married and they had children. And so someone in my church introduced me to them. I presented the gospel, talked about marriage and such, but I did not use a biblical service. You know, non Christians can be married by the state. And I think it's important that they are married uh, legally and not just uh, living together. Uh, so there could always be extenuating uh, circumstances. But uh, I would not, I think it's a matter of conscience. Uh, liberty is what I should say. I think if a minister wanted to uh, officiate at a wedding between two uh, unconverted people, uh, he could do so. I think in today's climate, uh, the second half of that is uh, professing Christians who show no evidence of true saving faith. There's certain things that we need to be doing today to be as wise as serpents, and one is uh, every session or board of governors of a church need to have very clearly uh, worked out uh, principles in terms of whom the pastor may marry and who may be married in that church building uh, because of uh, uh, certain types of people trying to force this issue. So um, we've always required a person to be one member, either the groom or the bridegroom need to be a member of our church, and the other one needed to be a member of kind of the same way we do the Lord's Supper, a Bible-believing church, and with a commitment that they're going to settle in one or the other congregations or like congregation when they got married. We need that today, and I think that's a very important thing. So if you open yourself up, uh, in one instance of, of performing a wedding service uh, for two non-Christians, then that exposes you, uh, in terms of the law, to all kinds of headaches because two homosexuals come to you and say, well, you married our friends. They're not Christians, and, you know, we want you to marry us. And, you know, if you can't bake a cake, uh, refuse to bake a cake for a uh, same-sex marriage couple, then you can surely get in trouble. So I just think to be safe and wise, I would avoid it. Now, there can be family situations where... 
a brother or a sister uh, wants to be married, they nor their prospective spouse are uh, Christians, um, that's something you might want to do. So I think it's a matter of conscience, but I think in today's, well, we got the issue of God's name, and then in today's legal culture, we need to be very careful. What do you do with two professing believers who are clearly living in sin and are related to you? And so I, my siblings do not claim Christ at this point in their lives. If, they were to, if one of them were to approach me to ask me to, to officiate you know, his wedding or her wedding, uh, then I don't have to deal with them claiming to be Christians but living in a different way. And then my calculus is just as you've outlined. Uh, do I do this? Because I do think it's better for them to be married than to be cohabiting outside of marriage, right? That's my calculus. But what if, let's say I had a, a brother who um, was living with his significant other, his fiancée, uh, clearly in sin and claiming to be a follower of Christ. And I've called them to repentance. I've encouraged them not to do that. I've encouraged them to, to really unite themselves visibly with a local church. And they've said no to all those things. But they still invite me as a minister of the gospel to officiate their wedding in a grand ceremony. At that point, doesn't it look like I'm blessing the relationship as it's been and as I hope it will become? Um, what, how do you navigate that with a hypocritical professing Christian? Right, yeah. I, uh, that's even more difficult. I still wouldn't do a church wedding. I think I would say, I really want you guys to be married. This is great. I'll do premarital counseling for you. I will do a civil wedding uh, for you. Um, but I... I you know, as I say, I think it's a matter of conscience, or liberty is what I should be saying, that I don't think biblically you can say that it would be a sin for you to perform such a service, considering the particular thing about, I might really have trouble with the vows, but I have, I have friends in another country that actually ran a wedding chapel. It was one of the ways they financed their ministry. Um, and I, I couldn't do that, but they can. So, But, yeah, but I would not want a church. I wouldn't do a church wedding, and I wouldn't. I would try to do it. I would offer to do a civil wedding, and then it's in their court. Uh, and then you say, now, you know, if, you, if you have a civil wedding and you don't want me to do it, I'll still come um, or whatever. It's rough. I, I realize that. I think what I would run up against is if I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God in that context, um, I would consider it a missed opportunity not to address the elephant in the room. And I'd probably say something from the front in as gentle a way as I can. I'm not very good at being gentle, but (laughs) in as gentle a manner as I can, I would say something like, I think this is great that you're getting married. Uh, And I'd say to everyone present, this is wonderful that this couple are moving forward toward the right thing. But I need to recognize that my participation here does not bless or condone how they've gotten to this point. And I've talked to them about that because this is what the word requires of us leading up to marriage as well as what it requires of us in our marriages. Faithfulness, sexual faithfulness. And I don't know that anyone wants, <laughs> wants me or you or anyone else <laughs> to give that message at their wedding. 
Um, but anyway, that's, I think we've, we've explored the topic and you've given very helpful counsel, Dr. Piper. Um, moving into another question from another anonymous uh, listener. If a man commits adultery and his wife chooses to divorce him from a biblical perspective, should she get full custody of the children? And if yes, does he cease to be the covenantal head of the household? Does the man's repentance and desire to remain in the marriage or lack thereof change the answer? Is joint custody a biblical concept since we don't seem to see any reference to such a practice in Scripture? Yes, Anonymous, uh, you've really asked what I think is a very important question in our day. <coughs> and there's a number of issues involved in it. Uh, we'll first take it that the man commits adultery, his wife divorces him, and he is not in any way repentant. Um, unfortunately, there's hardly any court in America now that gives full custody in a situation like that. Um, but uh, he, in my opinion, has ceased to be the covenantal head of the household. Well, let's put it this way. If they are in the church, and that's what we're doing, I think, here with professing Christians, he would also be excommunicated. And with that excommunication and the severance of the marriage, no, he would no longer be, in my opinion, the covenantal head of the household. Um, if, if the man or the woman, whoever the, quote, innocent party is, can get custody, that's great. Uh, we recognize when that doesn't happen, and we've got some situations in our own congregation where the children then have to go be with uh, non-Christian uh, parents and in, in, uh, environment uh, with this shared custody, and probably down the road that could create some difficulties. I, when I pray for these children, I pray that if God could protect Moses and Pharaoh's household, then he can surely protect these children and trust that he will. They are his children, and he's placed his name uh, on them. Now, if the man um, repents, and here I differ with some of the, uh, with Jay Adams and others, I don't, I, I think the woman is not required to, I think she can forgive him without staying in the marriage. Uh, trust has been broken, and uh, so I don't think she's required to stay married to him. But if he did repent, then yes, he should exercise uh, a covenantal responsibility uh, for his children as well. And of course, if they stay in the marriage um, and he's repented, the, the answer is clear. Now, what we have today is that that the, a woman keeps the man in the marriage, doesn't divorce him, and he's not repentant. And that really creates great difficulties in the household in terms of kind of spiritual oversight. But again, if they are in a, uh, a biblical church, he would be excommunicated, which would in no way cause his wife or children to shun him. But I think she would then have the spiritual oversight of the children and would be leading them in family worship and things like that. This is a pressing issue, and to reiterate what my colleague has said, this is something that every church is going to deal with one way or another. Divorce is just that prevalent in our society. Um, 
and and even in the lives of those who want nothing to do with it and it's foisted right. upon them um for no fault of their own all right now we're going to move into a series of questions uh from a longtime listener isaiah groom of british columbia he's good about giving us a number of questions in a shot and i don't know how many we'll get through here but we'll work through them they deal with sabbath and uh, images and ministry it, he has given us particularly a number of questions about officers in the church but we're going to start with what I think is going to be a bit of a gimme for Dr. Piper uh, is it wrong to watch sports that take place on the Lord's Day on another day of the week so an example of this would be a Sunday football match or game and recording it on your DVR um, not thinking about it on Sunday because everything's preset on Saturday, but then Monday rolls around, and after after supper time, you're, you're wondering, hey, I wonder how that game yesterday went, and you you take a watch. Is is that okay? Again, I think it's a matter of of, of liberty of conscience. Uh, I wouldn't do it um, because of uh, the principle of what they are doing in violating uh, the Sabbath. Uh, I know other Christians that love the Lord's Day uh, would do it, uh, and so I think in person needs to pray and uh, interact with a pastor and elders and uh, try to reach a decision on that. I think you're better off not doing it, but I just can't say absolutely no. When I was asked this question one time, or or maybe when I was discussing this question with uh, other men, um, one an analog they gave me, they said, do you receive mail on Mondays and Tuesdays? And I said, well, yeah, of course I do. Uh, do you open it? Yeah. Well, you know it was moving through the mail on Sundays. I said, yeah, there's nothing I can really do about that um, other than petition the government to cease all operations of the Postal Service on the first day of the week. But- yeah, I don't think that's a proper analogy, Zach, because uh, we're told that God's given us six days to do all of our work, which include our work and our recreation. Uh, and in good conscience, do that. Now, I wouldn't open mail. Uh, try not to open any just general email as well on the Lord's Day. And I don't mail letters on Saturday. For me, that's much more important. Because I know if I'm going to mail it on Saturday, that I am forcing them to deal with that. So that's something I can control. But I cannot control uh, where that mail was uh, on, on the day before. Same way, you know, you get a, mo- a Monday paper. So I don't get a Sunday paper. Of course, there are not many of those left any longer. <laughs> but um, uh, I don't get a Sunday paper. In fact, Wall Street Journal delivers to us through the uh, local newspaper, and the local newspaper quit Saturday deliveries for a while, and so the journal said that we're going to deliver the paper. Um, no, they didn't. They, did, they changed to Monday. And uh, gave two paper. Maybe no, I guess it was on the Lord's Day. I don't remember. I just quit taking it until they got that worked out. But um, I don't think the analogy holds. The other thing is that is going on on the Lord's Day, and it's not something that you can't control in terms of your lifestyle. You you have ultimate control whether or not you're going to watch it. But I still say it's a matter of liberty. The other Sabbath question that Isaiah has is another one that would be very familiar to you and to many of our listeners. Can you comment on the increased rate of exemptions? I think what he meant is exceptions or different stated differences to the recreation clause. 
that would be in um, in the catechisms and confessions teaching on the fourth commandment. Can you comment on Isaiah 58 verses 13 and 14 and what the word pleasure means for us today? Uh, before Dr. Piva jumps to the the answer that he's going to give, I will recommend Dr. Ryan McGraw's excellent book that has a chap- a whole chapter on these two verses, um, the, uh, the Day of Worship, uh, published by Reformation Heritage Books, uh, authored by Ryan McGraw. And uh, I, this, this, is the, this is the first chapter in my book as well, Yep, yep. dealing with, with this, although I think Dr. McGraw addresses it from a little different angle. Let me read those verses quickly. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, speaking your own word. Then you will take delight in the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Throughout the history of interpretation since the Reformation, up until fairly recently, Reformed uh, expositors and commentators have taken the word uh, pleasure, seeking your own pleasure, to refer to uh, activities that go beyond our regular calling. So recreation, hobbies, uh, things like that. Even as late as uh, E.J. Young in his commentary on Isaiah, which would have been the middle of the 20th century, uh, takes that interpretation. Uh, And that's the interpretation that the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms take as well. So I think that the text is clear here with respect to uh, what we try not to do in order that we might honor the day and fulfill it in the way so that we will take delight in the Lord have spiritual victory and enjoy our inheritance in Christ. <clears throat> now, the particular thing that uh, Isaiah is referring to is uh, in the Confession of Faith and in, in the Larger Catechism is the Recreation Clause. Uh, and what, if people are being honest, what I have seen in, in uh, our Presbytery is they don't understand the Recreation Clause. Recreation clause has to do with pursuing um, any type of recreative activity for the sake of that activity, sports participation or watching sports or movies, um, anything of those category. Uh, It does not rule out, particularly we always get the question with respect to our children, Our children need to have physical activity on the Lord's Day. Uh, And again, it gets to be a matter of conscience in terms of how each household does that. We would take our children uh, for a walk, and on that walk we would review catechism, or we would uh, play a game, find things that God made, or just talk. Um, and use that time just to interact with them. Others think it's fine to get out for 15 minutes or so in the backyard and throw the ball with their son or their daughter or or whatever. For me, the principle there is the activity needs to be consistent with the purposes of the day and not to be an end in itself. So that if I 
going to do something physically with my children, it is to enable them to prosper spiritually and to keep the Sabbath, not just to have some time of family recreation. And so uh, a lot of men, if they're being honest, don't really understand the recreation clause because when you ask them what they're talking about, they say, well, going for a walk or going for a walk with my children or something like that. And that's why I would distinguish between and maybe it's just how people use words, but between going for a walk and going for a hike. So I don't think that a hike is going to be consistent with the purposes of the Sabbath, both because of the time investment and the purpose of a hike is a bit different from the purpose of a walk. And so I make those kind of distinctions. But unfortunately, we'll have others that are going further and saying, well, I don't have a problem if... Uh, my children, you know, play soccer on Lord's Day afternoon or uh, other types of uh, recreation. And some churches actually have their young people out playing volleyball uh, on, uh, on the Lord's Day, things like that. I think all that's contrary to recreation clause. So... If it's purely a matter, I'm doing something physical for myself or my children so we can keep the Sabbath. An example I often use when I teach on this, I have an elder. In fact, you spent some time with him at the assembly, Andy Edwards. Um, Andy um, would go out on Sunday afternoon before the service and would run around the block two or three times. Not because he liked to run but because that type of exercise enabled him not to fall asleep in the evening service. Then it's consistent with the purposes of the Sabbath. Now, I was a runner, and if I went out to run, I'm not going out and run to stay awake in the service. I'm going out to run because that is a hobby that I enjoy. So that's one of the areas, one of the ways I make a difference. And I think in, in my book, I give a series of questions uh, that people can use to uh, look at activities because... We don't want to legislate in areas where the Bible is silent. And so it's much more important. Does this activity promote the purposes of the Lord's Day in my life and life of my children? But this whole matter of uh, differences with the standards that turn into exceptions is really uh, unfortunate because it's, if you get enough people in a presbytery that come in with these differences, then suddenly you have... Um, amended your constitution without going through the proper process. And it's very difficult to amend the confession of faith. And it needs to be based upon very strong exegesis. I think that the, the concrete how this works out is, is perhaps more helpful for families that have a wide spread of ages to manage. Um, if you have toddlers and preteens both in the house, uh, you just have to be very intentional to to do what you have to do to really steward their hearts and help them to delight in the Lord's day as well as grow in their understanding of the purpose well, and one of, of the, it. One of the things, though, in that scenario is the older children should be working with the younger children. I mean, today we have so many, we have books, we have good videos. There's, there's no reason that even a, a wider age group family uh, cannot get creative and help the children love the Sabbath. 
And the Sabbath, I think, really is a delight for us. What I've really wrestled with more as a parent, and this is particularly with the preteens, is sometimes I think they look forward to the Lord's Day not for corporate devotion, but just for corporate, uh, for getting together with their friends. Because it's being with their friends, yeah. For being with their friends, which I want them to enjoy being with their friends. But I don't want them to lose sight of the Lord's Day and delighting in Christ. And I set that reminder before them every Saturday evening and throughout the week and on the Lord's Day. And I say it just like that. I want you to delight to be with your friends. I think that's wonderful. Uh, But don't lose sight of Christ and what the purpose of the day is. And and my wife is very good about uh, reminding the kids on that score. Well, enough on that. Um, We are running up pretty much to our time, but if you want to add a question yourself, go to antiochpca.com slash podcast. There's a submission form there. You can also email me at Zach, Z-A-C-K, at antiochpca.com, and I will add your question to the list. Do you have any closing thoughts, Dr. Piper? No, just that by God's grace, we'll be very faithful uh, monthly now, doing this again, and probably should publish a Reminder on the website that we've started it back as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll push this out on all social media channels and uh, by email to the few people who have said that they want to be kept in the loop um, on the podcast. And uh, this should be available wherever podcasts are found. And uh, we really do appreciate you all. Thank you for tuning in and send us your questions. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church. To submit your questions for the next Faith and Practice segment, please visit antiochpca.com slash podcast. For more information about Antioch, visit us on our website at antiochpca.com.